Welcome back to the program, friends, and welcome back to another week of broadcasts here on Corbett Report Radio. Of course, I am your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, and I am coming to you tonight, as every night, from the sunny climes of western Japan, where it's already Tuesday the 10th. So thank you once again for tuning in, and I'm looking forward to another exciting week of broadcasts for you. And for anyone who has been looking at CorbettReport.com today, waiting for the International Forecaster, the weekly conversation with Bob Chapman, I must uh, once again confess that uh, because of my own stupidity and no one else's, unfortunately, we did not manage to record today. We will be uh, doing that later on tonight for me. That should be tomorrow morning for you guys out there in North America. So just hang on tight, and that will be along shortly. But to move on to tonight's edition of the broadcast, of course, I will be here for the next hour, and we will be joined tonight by Professor Anthony Hall a professor of globalization studies at the University of Lethbridge in Alberta, Canada, who has been a teacher in the Canadian university system since 1982. And his writings are available widely online, including, of course, at veteranstoday.com. So, Dr. Anthony Hall, thank you for so much for coming on today. Hi, James. Uh, thanks for inviting me. Well, it's great to have you here. So let's, I, I know you write and touch on a lot of different things in your writing. So let's talk uh, just briefly about your, yourself and your background and what types of subjects you're, uh, you're interested in. Oh, my goodness. That's a, a big subject. Um, well, I uh, did my PhD in history, uh, specifically uh, Canadian history. I, I then got uh, employed at uh, Laurentian University in Sudbury in Native Studies. And from uh, 1982 to 2002, I worked as kind of the history guy, first at Laurentian University and then at the University of Lethbridge, uh, where I am right now. And uh, as I worked through it, uh, I could see there, there was a larger global picture. I started by looking at uh, the history of native newcomer encounters in North America and then the Americas and little by little appreciated the process of colonization that I was looking at was happening in Africa and in Asia. And uh, so uh, in 2002, I pitched this concept of globalization studies. And I've got two big volumes, uh, The American Empire in the Fourth World and uh, Earth into Property, Colonization, Decolonization, and Capitalism, uh, where I kind of make the transition from... Uh, um, looking at things in a more local way to trying to look at things in a more global way. So uh, I uh, take the world as my subject matter. I try to break out of sort of uh, balkanized academic specialties that I see so many of my colleagues, uh, you know, working in that matrix. Uh, uh, people do very good work uh, specializing in things. But I found myself, for instance, a year ago, looking at what was going on in Fukushima and just uh, became kind of mesmerized and very quickly went to work and wrote about it a couple of weeks after the event. By the end of March, I had a, a big article uh, from Hiroshima to Fukushima looking at uh, the history of uh, how it was that Japan had uh, bought into uh, nuclear energy so so radically, so extreme, uh, and of course, uh, as I looked into it, I, I was dumbfounded to discover, for instance, the uh, the reactors, the 
uh, Mark I GE reactors at Fukushima were the prototypes, were actually the, the same reactors, but on a giant scale designed for the Nautilus submarine in the 1950s. And that's why uh, those uh, fuel rods are on top of the uh, reactors in this strange, uh, very dangerous way that it was built. So we're basically looking at, at, uh, at uh, antiques there. I hear the music coming on. which Absolutely. I we're just going into our first break, but very interesting. And we will get more into that Hiroshima to Fukushima article right after these messages. So just hang tight. We'll be back right after this. Here on this Monday evening, as tonight we're talking to Dr. Anthony J. Hall, a professor of globalization studies at the University of Lethbridge in my home province of Alberta, Canada. And tonight we're talking about a number of different subjects that Dr. Hall covers in his work, much of which, as I say, is available at veteranstoday.com, including, of course, this uh, this incredible essay that he was talking about just before the break, uh, from Hiroshima to Fukushima, 1945 to 2011, a nuclear narrative of hubris and tragedy. And there's also a YouTube video uh, based on that article talking a little bit more about Fukushima that came out in October of last year, and links to both of those will be in the show notes for tonight's episode at corporatereport.com slash radio. But Professor Hall, let's let's start talking about that that very detailed article uh, from Hiroshima to Fukushima, 1945 to 2011. And as you were mentioning before the break, some of the very interesting and long-forgotten history uh, connecting, for example, the USS Nautilus to the GE Mark I boiling water reactor design that's used in the Fukushima uh, Daiichi power plant. So let's talk a little bit about that history and how those dots connect. Yeah, well... Uh... I started by asking the question, you know, how is it that these uh, reactors, these nuclear reactors, were built on uh, on an earthquake zone, and uh, in the case of the plants on the coast, in, in you know situated where they were bound to be hit by tsunamis, which automatically come with earthquakes. So uh, it was really a story of the Cold War, and uh, it had a lot to do with the building up of uh, Japan as a kind of U.S. colony, a formal U.S., an informal U.S. colony. Uh, of course, it was, uh, Japan was uh, occupied and governed by the United States directly uh, in the 19, late 1940s, and, uh, and uh, so... Uh, as uh, television, for instance, was coming on, it was discovered that this would be a tremendously important propaganda vehicle in the psychological warfare of the, of the Cold War. So um, the first promoter of nuclear power in Japan, Matsutaro Shoriki, uh, in the Imperial Japan, he'd been kind of like a combination between J. Edgar Hoover and... Uh, and William Randolph Hearst, a kind of publicist who promoted the colonization of Manchuria, for instance, uh, he was uh, prominent among the many uh, leaders in Imperial Japan who for a time were incarcerated. Uh, some of them were put on trial. But basically, as in Germany, it was discovered, well, these people will be very important anti-communists 
so Shariki uh, got the first TV license because he was such a, a committed and zealous anti-communist. And uh, with the first, uh, you know, with his TV license, which is now Nippon Television Network, he he promoted uh, nuclear energy. Had a, there was a festival in Tokyo promoting uh, nuclear energy. So, uh, you know, it, this story was familiar to me in, in Germany. I'd looked at it in Germany, but I hadn't gone into the details of what had happened in, in Japan to see, you know, the interesting phenomena of the United States government getting acquainted with the future uh, leadership of Japan in prison. Uh, they, they were, many of them were um, incarcerated as war criminals, including uh, Shariki. Uh, Eisenhower had his Atoms for Peace propaganda initiative of course uh, people around the world uh, were um, in starting to panic as uh, the Soviet Union and the United States started to counter test bigger and bigger atomic weapons and then nuclear weapons and kind of as a as a strategy to try to calm nerves a bit uh, that it seemed that humanity was being set up uh, you know for a terrible um, um, kill of uh, termination and maybe you know that 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 reality is still with us uh so eisenhower in 53 gave this speech atoms for peace promoting uh nuclear energy as a quote-unquote peaceful use of course as i see it the nuclear energy industry is deeply connected to the nuclear weapons in industry always has been the nuclear energy in industry sort of gives uh, 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 was exploited to give a more human face to a business that, promote, pr that produces nuclear weapons, General Electric, of course, being the big one, uh, or one of the big ones producing uh, fat, uh, fat Man and Little Boy dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Of course, you know, as, as Fukushima was starting to, you know, the news got out that it's spewing away the the horrific uh, realization that you know here here is an experiment on human subjects, and I guess you living in Japan, James. I mean, you are one of those uh, human subjects. I guess all humanity is, in a way, guinea pigs for these uh, technological innovations that uh, we really don't know the effects on on the health of human beings and all life. But you know, to 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 grapple with the reality that the very country that experienced uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki was now being, in, in, in a sense, uh, nuclear, a nuclear weapon was going off in slow motion and is going off, uh, at, as we speak at Fukushima to take this all in and try to come up with an interpretation and, and explain how it could, could have happened. Uh, that, that was, uh, where I was at last spring. And just to draw out what you're saying there in some more detail when you're talking about Matsutaro Shoriki, the, the uh, founder and the owner of the Yamiuri Shinbun and uh, various other media outlets, it, he was very, very much involved with this promotion of, uh, of the nuclear power industry in Japan back at a time when obviously the idea was almost unthinkable and explicitly with the help of the CIA. And, uh, and it goes uh, even to the point where he was actually the first president of the Japanese Atomic Energy Commission, which is a pretty startling thing for someone who was openly working hand-in-glove with the CIA on the promotion of nuclear technology, as you say, in the very country that had experienced the only attack of uh, uh, nuclear yeah. attack in history. Huge, huge conflict of interest there, of course. 
to to this day, I can't believe that the the company that created the conditions resulting in the the debacle at Fukushima. I mean, can you really call it an accident because uh, an earthquake was an inevitable, uh, a tsunami was was an inevitable? Uh, but the the company with all its frauds and uh, um, malfeasance and negligence that created the conditions that resulted in this uh, debacle uh, has been left in control. Of course, you know, there's no liability there. That company doesn't have, uh, uh, it, it's only liable to the extent of $2 billion. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, to me, it's a travesty. It's a great failure of, of, of the human species that we don't see a, a major international coalition of the nuclear powers dealing with this, um, with the United States, of course, leading the way. Of course, the United States would know, uh, would have, you know, secret systems monitoring how much radioactivity is going into the ocean, is in the atmosphere. Uh, all of this is being kept, kept secret from us. Uh, the United States has been studying uh, how to deal with nuclear ra ra radioactivity uh, how to govern in conditions after a nuclear holocaust of some sort. So uh, it really is the U.S. government who was uh, responsible in the first place for how nuclear energy came to be in Japan. And, uh, you know, I, I look at uh, this as one of uh, many war crimes that Barack Obama is, is, is now uh, responsible for, or crimes against humanity, really. This is a huge crime against humanity that we don't have the full, you know, thrust and power of what we, we would be capable of, the, the pathetic response at this very moment, you know, the failure of the General Electrics, the Westinghouses, the Toshibas, um, the um, France, the, uh, you know, the, the major uh, nuclear corporations, uh, you know, they, they, they must be involved on the, on the sidelines or here or there or secretly. Who knows what secret things? I mean, there's always, when you're talking about this industry, so much secrecy and so many things going on covertly beneath the surface that who, who really knows what, what uh, is being done. But, uh, you know, th this, is, this is a major crisis for all humanity. I, I, I still think that really Tokyo should have been evacuated. Uh, um, you know, when I think, you know, Japan is a very small island um, in, in the larger scheme of things. So, so I still find myself just dumbfounded at the, the lack of an appropriate response to this horrific situation. And, and of course, we now do know from former Prime Minister Naoto Kan that the order, that the uh, plan to to evacuate Tokyo was drafted up and was presented as a possibility in a, in a worst case scenario, but it was immediately rejected as as unthinkable because it would mean the end of the functioning of the state itself. So, well, uh, as I started to grapple with it, as I started to realize that there were forty years of nuclear waste being kept on that plant, as I started to realize the juxtaposition of the most dangerous industrial processes known to humankind, that all of these different processes were uh, pushed together and concentrated in this tiny little area. So if something goes wrong in one aspect of the system, it spreads to the other aspect of the system. 
you know, as as I started to uh, conceive of, uh, you know, and I, I looked at nuclear waste issue in Ontario in the 1980s when they were building Darlington, and and I was, you know, I studied it when I realized they were going to be putting it in the Canadian Shield, and it seemed to me that, you know, part of the thinking was, well, there's only Native people there, so we'll put the waste there. But, you know, there, there was, there, it's complete negligence that the nuclear waste is being stored at the same place where the fuel is being being burned uh, so my, my thinking was that uh, Japan as we've known it is sort of over and uh, my thinking really hasn't uh, changed that you know little by little as the people of Japan realize how badly they've been betrayed by their governments by their authorities that Japan as we know it is is, is finished well, certainly it is a charade that they've been playing for far too long, and the rug is being pulled out from under it. On that note, let's take another short break. We're back here on Corbett Report Radio this evening talking to Dr. Anthony J. Hall. Once again, he is a professor of globalization studies at the University of Lethbridge. And if you'd like to get in on tonight's conversation, you can, of course, join us on the line 1-800-313-9443. Or you can even tweet your questions at Corbett Report, and I will endeavor to get to them on air. But, Dr. Hall, I know that uh, we have a lot to talk about tonight, so I'd like to move on. But before we move on from Fukushima, I think it is important to uh, to draw out some of what you were saying there before the break, including, of course, the, uh, the dangerous nexus of the uh, companies that are running these power plants and, and creating the technology, the, the Mark I reactor, etc., and the uh, the very regulatory commissions that are supposedly watching over them, and I think this uh, this disaster, if it has exposed anything, has exposed that quite clearly. That that very dangerous nexus. Perhaps you can speak to that, and and really what the uh, the answer to that problem is. Uh, well, that that's a huge question, but I think I'd I'd like to take that question and focus in on uh, this issue of uh, the nuclear energy industry doesn't pay for insurance and no uh, private company would insure the nuclear industry because it's so dangerous so uh, this is a, a you know social this is a welfare bum type of uh, uh, business because uh, if the business had to pay for insurance it would be astronomical so you know the the public is left to pay the insurance carry the liability, and we're left to take the health consequences, you know, to ourselves and all our future generations, all our posterity together. So, so um, uh, this uh, convergence of uh, the nuclear business, whose main business is to build nuclear weapons, I mean, the whole uh, thrust of the industry starts with the uh, enterprise that ends up uh, nuking Japan, or uh, uh, you know, and and th- these are uh, the major corporations. So, so, so uh, this military-industrial complex, you know, an aspect of it is the nuclear energy industry, uh, which is uh, you know, which is a corporate welfare bomb in in a sense. It, it, it's you know, to privatize, to treat this business as if it. It, it can be appropriately privatized when, 
when it represents such an enormous danger for all humanity and all life on the planet. That, that, that is, is madness. I mean, this deregulatory approach that started with the Reagan-Thatcher years, uh, you know, we see it in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, we see the banking uh, frauds and the horrific uh, financial debacle, this uh, idea that uh, we keep deregulating and, and expect the industries to regulate themselves is madness. And Fukushima surely epitomizes that. It epitomizes this uh, uh, corporate takeover, this corporatism. Of course, you know, the fascist system in Italy was referred to as corporatism. And, and in a certain sense, national socialism was sort of socialism for the corporations, which would be included in the war machine. And of course, you know, Ford and ITT and General Electric and but, but the thing that I, I agree with you on so much of your analysis, but the thing that gets to me is that the people who are often calling for more regulation as a, as a way of solving this problem are, are the ones that somehow believe that this system came about just a, a, by chance and we could somehow set up some utopian system where the regulatory bodies with the authority to step in and do something about this wouldn't be owned by the very multi-billionaire, you know, power player multinational corporations that they're supposedly watching over. I don't think that's... That's just something that happened by chance. I think that's something that's very much uh, well, hardwired into the system. It didn't happen by chance. Um, uh, anyway, I, I, it's it's an enormous issue, and I, I kind of think there's so many so many things that we have been working on in common. For instance, uh, you know, we need a, a regulatory system when it comes to international law. When it comes to international criminality, we have obvious war criminals like George Bush, like Dick Cheney like Condoleezza Rice, like Rumsfeld, you know, touring the, the earth. And, 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 and it creates great cynicism that we see that the rule of law really doesn't apply to the Jeffrey Immelts, for instance, uh, the president of, of GE. So uh, uh, we've worked together on uh, the idea that we need to get some kind of credible way to hold uh, individuals who violate the law on a massive scale, let's take George Bush in a, as an example, um, we need to get some way to get them in, into court, into trial, accountable to um, their fellow human beings for, for violating the law and violating hum, humanity, crimes against humanity on an enormous scale. So we worked on this in uh, um, Calgary when George Bush made his first guest appearance as a speaker after being president of the United States. He, not surprisingly, came to Calgary. And uh, Splitting the Sky was eventually arrested at that event uh, for attempting a, a citizen's arrest. And uh, so that's been a, a big involvement uh, over the over the last few years uh, working on that. Uh, I was at the event at Vancouver last autumn where Cheney was speaking at the Vancouver Club and uh, it was a, a sort of pleasant to count a little bit of coup when Cheney said he's not coming to Toronto given his experience at the Vancouver Club last September. Specifically citing that, in fact, in uh, or at least the people who booked him were specifically citing that as the reason he wasn't coming. So certainly that is a victory of sorts. And let's talk a little bit more about that after the break. Once again, 1-800-313-9443 if you'd like to join us on air. We are talking to Dr. Anthony J. Hall, a professor of globalization studies at the University of Lethbridge. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. 
our government be competent? Jimmy Carter says yes. Jimmy Carter says yes. Oh, yes, friends, we're all just waiting for the next Jimmy Carter to come along and save the world as we know it. <laughs> because Jimmy Carter says yes. Um, and unfortunately, the song may change slightly, but the lyrics generally stay almost identical. So whether uh, the savior is going to be Barack Obama or whatever politician we put all our faith and trust in, that's always the mantra that is repeated every few years. And you wonder why people get cynical about the election cycle. And tonight we're talking to Dr. Anthony J. Hall, Professor of Globalization Studies at the University of Lethbridge. We've been talking about a range of issues and getting into some of the work that uh, that he's been doing in protesting some of the war criminals, the unindicted war criminals who have been visiting Canada with disturbing frequency over the last few years. And, of course, the first foreign uh, international appearance by former President George Bush after having left office was his visit to my hometown of Calgary, Alberta, Canada, back in 2009. So uh, so there has been a lot of action on that front in Canada. So perhaps, Dr. Hall, you can talk a little bit about some of the work that you've done in that regard and uh, really what the basis, the underlying basis for the, the legal principles involved are. Well, uh, about uh, 60 days before George Bush came to Calgary, uh, Splitting the Sky, uh, sometimes known as uh, John Boncourt, uh, called me, uh, and we've worked together on a number of things, starting with uh, the Gustafson Lake Indian War in 1995. Um, Splitting the Sky uh, was charged with killing a guard at the Attica prison event in 1971, and it became a, uh, a very famous case in the United States. His lawyer was uh, Kunstler and then Ramsey Clark. Uh, so he's got a kind of a international... Um, Jurist perspective on a lot of things. He's had a lot of a lot of time in jail too to to read extensively. He's quite a reader. So both of us kind of took it uh, deeply to heart. Uh, it was kind of like something was dropped on us. Uh, a responsibility. Oh my God! You know the the world's most prominent, uh, obvious war criminal is coming to your backyard. And it seemed uh, necessary to mobilize, in a way, to protect Calgary's reputation, because obviously somebody was making the decision that Calgary was, as, as a kind of extension of uh, Texas, as a kind of colonial outpost of Houston and Dallas, uh, that this would be an appropriate place for Bush to speak. So uh, by the time he got there in March of 2009, there was a few hundred uh uh, protesters complaining, uh, not so much uh, just to make the point that we don't like George Bush, but to put pressure on legal uh, law enforcement authorities in Canada that they must do their job. That, for instance, there is in Canada a Crimes Against Humanity and War Crimes Act passed in 2000, saying that Canada is not to be a haven for war criminals. So we have uh, domestic legislation, and of course there's international treaties and protocols and such, uh, Geneva Conventions and, and such, uh, uh, but we could uh, have, you know, the fully, we have the, the legislation domestically in Canada to deal with, with that. So uh, it was a, a real problem with the media to make the point, this isn't just about complaining about George Bush and his conduct. It's about putting pressure on Canadian authorities to do their job. Splitting the Sky uh, 
uh, in, in a you know very famous episode, uh, broke through police lines, and you know after it became clear that the police weren't going to do their job, were spitting on the rule of law effectively, he uh, kind of symbolically said, "Well, then I'll do it myself." And of course, that led to a trial. Uh, the trial eventually brought in uh, Ramsey Clark, splitting this guy's uh, lawyer, former lawyer. Of course, Ramsey Clark was uh, the Attorney General of the United States uh, during Lyndon Johnson. He was very close with the Kennedy brothers, especially Bobby Kennedy. He was a good friend of Martin Luther King. It was quite something to be able to sort of hang out with him for a couple of days. And he eventually uh, spoke at the trial and said... Uh, he loved splitting the sky. He loved him like a son and uh, sort of said, you know, see, th this man uh, tries to do something. He's trying, he's not expressing violence. He's trying to stop violence. He's trying to protect the rule of law and, uh, and Canadian sovereignty, ultimately, uh, because when we, we don't enforce our laws and we allow our country just to be a, uh, a walking mat for known war criminals, um, you know, this is this is a, demeans us as a country. It it undermines our sovereignty and our self-respect. So uh, Cynthia McKinney also uh, came in uh, came in for that. Joshua Blakeney, my graduate student, who's doing his uh, MA thesis on 9/11 skepticism, he got involved in in making uh, YouTube's and such. So that this has become a, an interesting subject for us. Uh, Splitting the Sky will speak about it uh, in my classes. He's been a frequent speaker at the University of Lethbridge. And uh, uh, so my, my approach is to try to, uh, uh, from my position in the university, to get involved uh, in actual events, uh, actual stances uh, or procedures, say legal procedures like the case of splitting the sky versus George Bush that unfolded in Calgary over a one-year period and try to bring this into pedagogy, bring this sort of activist scholar's approach to uh, to the benefit of students and, and let them see that, you know, we, we not only study history, we, we try to take the fruits of what we learn from history and apply it in, you know, applied studies in, 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 in our actual life. We, we try to make history as well as study it. Well, that's right, and I think that's really the, the point of all of this in, in many ways. And certainly, uh, we've talked to uh, Splitting the Sky and Joshua Blakeney and others before on this program about those those actions, which are obviously commendable to try to bring some sort of justice and accountability to uh, to the absolute atrocious behavior of the Bush administration. And hopefully there will be uh, similar opportunities to do the same with uh, the war criminals that continue to come out in, of course, the U.S. and the U.K. and all the other Places yeah. around the world that are wa waging these unlawful wars of aggression right now. Well, uh, speaking of criminality and you know waiting for the next savior, uh, which was uh, your your introductory comments. Um, I've been watching uh, the election uh, scandal in Canada, the Robocon election scandal in Canada, and my attention has been drawn to the election scandal uh, unfolding now in the United States. Uh, so much of the kind of enthusiasm that was surrounding Barack Obama uh, in the last presidential election um, is coming to surround Ron Paul, who surely is a very eloquent spokesman uh, for the excesses and criminal behavior of, uh, of, of those leading the American empire. 
uh, often the informal American empire. And he speaks uh, in, a, in a very knowledgeable and deep way about the banking system, especially the Federal Reserve, and, and he's been doing so since uh, uh, 1997. He's very consistent. And I noticed that uh, there's a, a swath of reports, mostly on YouTube, but it's very clear that the primaries in the United States, the Republican Party primaries, there is, you know, there is a, a great deal of uh, malfeasance, of illegal um, intervention in, in electoral processes taking place to prevent Ron Paul's uh, surge of support from being reflected in, in the outcomes. You know, the, the outcomes of these primaries in Georgia, in South Carolina, in Alaska, especially in Iowa, especially in Maine, they are being falsified. Uh, you know, the, the, and, and it, it becomes yet another proof and evidence of how corrupt uh, the electoral process has become in the United States, especially uh, the Republican Party, especially, you know, the voting machines, the D-Bolts, the Sequoias, the ESNS companies that are uh, very deeply tied in with the Republicans. Uh, the fact that, you know, machine voting, computer machine voting is totally... Uh, corrupt and uh, susceptible to being hacked and is hacked, you know, behind this is the reality that the loser took the presidency from the vote in 2000 in the United States. The loser took the presidency in the vote in 2000. It was probably more severe. Uh, I'm coming across news that uh, Mike Connell, who was the Republican Party's IT guru and who was going to give testimony uh, against Karl Rove, uh, he was killed in a small plane accident in uh, 2008, three days before going on the stand. Uh, there's a, a Mark Spoonamore, a tremendously knowledgeable um, uh, security uh, expert on computer systems who looks at, uh, I'm learning new, new language here, the chain of custody in banking systems. He studies... Um, you know, security issues. He, he looks at various types of fraud that take place, uh, in, in various chains of custody. There is no chain of custody when it comes to electoral, uh, information in, in the U.S. system. And, and he, he makes a stunning, uh, indictment. And he was close with this Mike Connell. Um, and, uh, anyway, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm plunging in. I, I started to plunge into the Canadian election and see that laws are being broken, that, uh, there's a tremendous influence coming from the Republican Party in the United States, that the Stephen Harper conservatives, in effect, terminated and extinguished the indigenous conservative party, the progressive conservative party, and replaced it with a kind of clone of the Republican Party in Canada. And, and so this uh, Robocon scandal involving phone calls directing targeted individuals, non-conservative voters to non-existing polling stations, this is part of a, a huge repertoire of electoral cheating that has been going on in the United States. And, and so we're going to see that the uh, Republican Party is thoroughly discrediting itself. I mean, you have these youthful, enthusiastic people around Ron Paul who show up by their thousands in all these primaries wanting to get involved, and they are being uh, deprived of their voice and their, and their right to 
uh, mark their their ballots and have their uh, opinion counted so that you can get this uh, fraudster, a bankster, Mitt Romney elected. I mean, people, uh, this Occupy movement, Occupy Wall Street, the fact that people uh, can't stand it anymore, that we have to take, you know, direct action of different sorts. I think the, the fact that the Republican Party is betraying uh, Ron Paul, what he stands for, and the millions of people who have chosen to rally behind him. You know, I'm not in agreement with Ron Paul's, uh, you know, some of his libertarian uh, politics, but there is, uh, you know, his critique of the American empire is so significant, so well-informed, and so consistent that uh, it's got to be a rallying cry for people around the world. Well, what I find particularly interesting is that we've arrived at a political moment in, in the United States, certainly, where we have people on the right defecting en masse and forming a, a Tea Party splinter group, which uh, has been obviously shunted off into very ineffectual and, and ridiculous uh, points in a lot of different ways, but actually stemmed from the, the Ron Paul sort of libertarian Republican wing of the party and, and before it became what it is now. We have the Occupy movement happening on the left and uh, the progressives and people who, who absolutely want to refute what uh, Obama has done in their name. And we have this uh, mass uh, disaffection of such a large par- part of the, uh, the, the voting public that unfortunately probably won't be uh, reflected in the fact uh, in, in the final vote in, when it, we have the elections later on this year because uh, most of the public doesn't bother to vote anymore because they've become so disenfranchised. I mean, it's really uh, quite a bizarre moment to arrive in, and yet no one seems to be pointing out that the same disaffection that's affecting people on the right is affecting people on the left and that they may have more in common than they do uh, really to, to bicker about. Of course, this is one of the very uh, telling and exciting aspects of the 9-11 Truth Movement, that it really does uh, reconfigure the political landscape. And you find on this issue that uh, there's a lot of common ground with, uh, with libertarians. You talk about the Tea Party. Um, well, the, the Tea Party movement apparently started in 2006. It was uh, uh, in the Boston Harbor, the, uh, an event to call attention to, uh, well, the, the East Indian, you know, the protest against the uh, East India Company's taxes, uh, the tax on, on tea in Boston Harbor. But it, it, the first Tea Party was a 9-11 truth event uh, Bob Bowman was there. Uh, Kevin Barrett was there. So the Tea Party has been sort of co-opted uh, and funded and taken over by Fox and uh, Koch brothers. But I think it did start as a, a movement, a genuine grassroots movement. Um, of course, you know, when the Tea Party uh, protests against, uh, well, the, you know, the, the it's so skewered the way people don't understand their history. I mean, the uh, the people who the Tea Partiers were protesting against, they were conservatives. Uh, the British imperialists, you know, are the founders of our country. So, you know, we had, have in Canada a decent conservative heritage, uh, reflecting eventually in a, outgrowing in, in, in the Red Tories, the Joe Clarks, the David Crombies, the, um, <clears throat> Robert Stanfields. I mean, that red Tory tradition in Canada has been completely uh, engulfed and, and, and marginalized. And what we've got is this, uh, uh, you know, Republican import, this Republican clone, which is now the government of Canada. I mean, if, if there aren't uh, deep 
state politics going on and interventions uh, in bringing about that transformation from the era of Pierre Trudeau and Jean Chrétien to the era of Stephen Harper as Prime Minister of Canada. If, if the U.S. deep state and the uh, different fraudsters involved in fixing elections, not only in the United States, but through the CIA all over the world. If that's not a factor here in Canada, uh, then my name's not Anthony Hall. That's <laughs> a very, very good point. And, of course, we've seen in recent years the even closer relations between the U.S. and Canada made manifest by, for example, the recent border deal between uh, Obama and, that was signed by Ho- Obama and Harper. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, uh, of course, there was a great mobilization in Canada against uh, free trade, uh, Mulroney's free trade deal in 1988. That was the center of the piece of the election, uh, the extension of the free trade agreement to uh, North America to include Mexico in NAFTA in 1993-94. I think the... um, protagonists in, in, in all of this learn that they shouldn't create such high-profile target as these uh, trade deals. So we have the, uh, these uh, covert um, deals being made with the military, with the police, state um, departments, and, and really continental integration is going ahead, ahead now faster in a more intense way than it ever did under the Liberal Party, which were historically the party of North American continentalists. Indeed, it almost seems like one continuous agenda. But on that note, let's take a short break and we'll be right back with your calls right after this. Welcome back to the final moments of tonight's broadcast, friends. James Corbett of CorbettReport.com here tonight talking to Dr. Anthony J. Hall, Professor of Globalization Studies at the University of Lethbridge. Tonight we've been talking about a range of different issues pertaining not only to Canada, but of course to issues around the world. And uh, and in the final moments here, we have one caller on the line, so let's go to Werner in New Brunswick. Werner, thanks for joining us tonight. Yeah, good evening, uh, James, and uh, good evening, uh, Dr. Hall. Uh, I understand uh, you are a uh, an expert on Canadian law. I've been asked, right. uh, I've been asked myself the question. Uh, uh, I understand it had been established that Canadian militaries are involved in Afghanistan and in Libya, and uh, they had been uh, using depleted uranium and uh, white phosphorus, according to Dr. Miraki, who was a guest on RBN there about half a year ago. Now, if that is deemed to be a war crime, according to the Genfer Convention, wouldn't be automatically the, uh, on the American side, the commander-in-chief, and here on the Canadian side, the uh, prime minister and the defense minister, be uh, criminally liable? There's no question about it. Uh, and uh, the... The extent of the criminality these days at the highest levels, uh, the countries involved in NATO, for instance, is is um, stunning to behold. Now, in Canada, there was a, a, a civil servant who was in Afghanistan, Richard Colvin. He was giving a testimony in a parliamentary uh, hearing uh, explaining that there, the, there was a lot of evidence that 
Canadian Armed Forces in Afghanistan, who were there based on this fraudulent account of uh, 9-11, uh, but these Canadian forces were handing over detainees for torture by the puppet govern government of Hamad Karzai. And, uh, of course, that is a, a war crime. Um, and uh, but, uh, but the Harper government probed Parliament to shut down that discussion, to keep that uh, discussion from uh, developing in the media. But as I say, the use of depleted uranium and the use of white phosphorus against civilian population has been deemed, according to the Genfer Convention, a war crime. Okay. Yes, and we, we talk about depleted uranium, but are we so sure uh, Chris Busby was in Iraq and he said he thought it was shooting depleted uranium, but he found it was enriched uranium. And uh, I believe there is a lot of evidence to suggest there's a whole new generation of nuclear-related weaponry uh, that can, for instance, vaporize a, a tank and is, you know, mo more... Uh, Damaging, I, 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 I than even depleted uranium. But as I say, it boils down to uh, when this, uh, those kind of weapons are being used against civilian population, they are war crime. The same way as uh, uh, Madame Abo when uh, she uh, uh, was investigating the war crimes in Yugoslavia against Milosevic. Yes. And, well, this whole problem with international law, we never get anything other than victor's justice. Uh, at Nuremberg, yeah, at Tokyo, at, uh, uh, you know, in the, in the criminal tribunals on Rwanda and Yugoslavia, it's always the victor side putting the defeated side on trial. But we don't have any experience in human history of the uh, triumphant group, the dominant group dealing with criminality within its own ranks. And that, my friends, is a problem for perhaps another episode of this broadcast, and a very, very large one. But, Professor Hall, we're going to have to end it there. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Are there any websites that you'd like to throw out before we leave things tonight? Well, I'd like uh, people to perhaps have a look at uh, my recent study on uh, Canadian election fraud, and I'm working on uh, the Paul case, the Ron Paul case. It's uh, fixing right. elections through fraud at Veterans Today. The yes, I will put the links in the show notes, but we'll American have to leave Empire it right there. We're fresh out of time. Thank you for your time tonight. Cheerio.